The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay, all persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, are admonished to draw an eye and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. May be seated. Good morning, I'm Kevin McCardle on behalf of the federal respondents and may it please the court. I've reserved five minutes for rebuttal. <laughs> Congress enacted section 324 of the Fiscal Responsibility Act to expedite completion of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, finding that the project's timely completion and operation is required in the national interest. Two provisions of section 324 apply here and operate to deprive the court of jurisdiction over the pending petitions for review on two separate grounds. Let me ask you a preliminary question that's kind of interesting to me. Congress enacted this for the Mountain Valley Pipeline in the interest of international interest. Uh, it's been highlighted by a number of people. It's curious to me, I'm just, what is necessary? Was, was that necessary? to put that language into the act for it to have effect, that it's done in the, in the interest of the national interest or whatever, security. I don't think it, it was necessary to give the jurisdictional provisions at issue in this case effect, but it was intended, I think it's self-evident, to make clear that Congress was prioritizing this project over maybe other competing interests that might be embodied. But in a legal basis, and I'm thinking of a case like Shelby County, where the Supreme Court looked at a statute that had already been enacted by Congress that dealt with Section 5, which was for the purpose of preventing registration discrimination acts. Congress looked at this act that had already been in place and says, Congress, this thing is set aside or unconstitutional now because you don't have a finding basis to support the continuation of this act. And so the question I'm, that comes to mind is, were there findings or was there any type of action on the part of Congress to determine that in fact, this pipeline is in the national interest? In enacting the language of the statute, which makes that finding, I don't think Congress is- No, that's a conclusion. It is a conclusion to say it's in the national interest. The question I have, and I'm just asking, it's just, it was curious. It may, may ultimately have nothing to do with the facts of the case, but it's curious to me because when I look at cases, I like for things to be consistent. I don't have an interest one way or the other how the case comes out, but when the Supreme Court acts or when this court acts or whatever, the consistency of the law is important. And I'm just wondering, first, was it necessary? Maybe it wasn't. It's purposeless nature. They just did it as a matter of public interest to say it or was it something they said that was fundamental and supported by findings of fact because i don't remember there being congressional hearings of course we'd have to take judicial notice of that like we have so many other things so what do you think just just your thoughts on it. i think it's not necessary for the operation of the jurisdictional provisions at issue in this case but congress clearly found it necessary to 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 state that the timely completion of this project is in the national interest. And in subsection F, 
that determination applies notwithstanding any other provision of prior law, which might reflect com competing priorities. Now, did Congress engage in fact-finding, independent fact-finding? In other words, did Congress engage in anything to support the fact that it said it? That's the only thing, but, but we can move on from there. I'm just, I just, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts were on that, because it's kind of one of those preliminary things that jumped out at me when you say something is something, and it reminded me of the Shelby County case uh, in which Congress did say, well, you don't have any facts uh, to, to do with this. And of course, Congress has yet to find the facts and now bring it back. But I was just curious, that, and, but you can move on with your argument. It seems to me what is necessary in looking at Supreme Court law is rather than just Congress picking a, a winner here, there must have been a new legal standard um, amended or set by, by this act. Can you, what is that new I, legal standard? Well, frankly, I don't think that's the law. What do you think is the law then? Well, I think the law is Congress acts within the scope of its legislative authority when it changes the law, but not when it dictates outcomes or okay, finds when, well, what? How did it change the law then? It might be useful just to take a quick example. You know, Congress enacted NEPA. Suppose they passed a, a statute tomorrow that said all actions of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are exempt from NEPA. They could do that. They created NEPA, and now they're carving out an exception. They don't need to create NEPA light that applies to the Corps' actions. No, I understand. I'm just want to know what the, and I'm sure you have an answer to this, what is the, the change in the law here? Okay, E1, changes applicable jurisdictional law. Before E1, someone seeking to challenge one of the covered approvals issued by one of these specified agencies that's required, that's necessary for the operation, the completion and operation of the project at full capacity could have brought an action under the Natural Gas Act. Now they can't because Congress changed that applicable jurisdictional law, created a carve out. And that leaves, it's up to the court to, to adjudicate whether that carve out applies. And if so, to- That was gonna be my question. What is left for the court to do then? To determine whether um, this particular language applies to um, certain claims? You, you would have to find that the petitions challenge an authorization that's, that was issued by one of the listed agencies and that that challenged authorization is necessary for the completion and initial operation at full capacity of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Congress didn't dictate the outcome, the application of that standard. It left it up to you. And that's all that Article 3 requires. Now, there- Left, there, it, left it up to do what? To, to, to do what? What, what judicial function is there left? Well, you have to determine that the statute applies, that E1 applies, and then you, if you lack jurisdiction, you would need to dismiss. Um, just like in any case where you find that jurisdiction. Can the Fourth Circuit do that? Oh, no, I'm, well, yes, the, the Fourth Circuit can apply the statute as written. you're in the Fourth Circuit, right. Yes. So, right, so can we do that? Yes, you can look at the statute, apply it as written, Note that the fact that the petitions- Well, we can apply it as written. I, I said adjudication. That, that's really not adjudicating, is it? That's just reading. Well, that's not really fair because in Bank Marcazzi, the Supreme Court made clear Congress can dictate that a, chain, a new legal standard applies in pending cases, even if the facts implicated by the new standard are uncontested. But you had a different standard there, right? Because it was a, 
a change in terms of effective affirmative defense in terms of whether or not these assets were available in terms of the right. Right. And here we have you don't have what substantive change do you have in the law other than a license for for Mountain Valley to complete this without any guardrails that were put in place and still in place? You didn't change any federal law. You just gave a license and then told the court you can't do anything about it. Now tell me how, how that's the same thing it was. Your Honor, respectfully, that's not what the statute does. Oh, it doesn't? No. The statute carves out from this court's Natural Gas Act jurisdiction, which Congress granted in the first place, a class of actions. That class is the class that challenges any approvals existing at the time the statute was enacted and future approvals that are issued by one of the listed agencies and necessary for the construction and initial operation of the pipeline at full capacity. They changed the jurisdictional standard that they granted. They're entitled to do that. Even Klein says that if Congress just withdraws jurisdiction over a class of cases, that's a perfectly legitimate exercise of legislative power. And that's exactly what happened here. You're, you're highlighting the essence of plaintiff's argument. The application here is undisputed. And As I should and test it with you. Should, yes, should yes. Not? But it, you're highlighting the point that it happens to apply here and it's outcome determinative. But Bank Markazi tells us that that doesn't raise any constitutional problem. Congress can make a change in the law applicable to pending cases, even if it's outcome determinative. That's their whole case. And yes, it's out. The Supreme Court law on this thing is somewhat unclear. I think we all can kind of agree with that. You've got the Klein case, then it goes through a series of other cases, but probably the most important one that most people argue is about the Tox case, Tox case, which is really, I guess there's no opinion because you really have no real solid opinion on it. But do you think Klein is still good law? It's still good law, but it's subject to the limitations that the, that the Supreme Court has recently placed on it in, in cases like Plout and Bank Markazi. In Plout, the court said, Klein doesn't inhibit Congress from changing applicable law, which is what happened here. And in Bank Markazi, the court made clear that the problem in Klein was Congress tried to dictate the result of a pending case without changing the applicable standards for a presidential pardon which Congress had no authority to change in the first place, because that's the prerogative of the president. We don't have those two problems here. This, and remember, Klein also dictated that the cases should be dismissed, which is something that bothered Chief Justice Roberts in his Patrick dissent too. Let me, let me ask you this on, in terms of the change, the amendment, whether or not it's a positive change. I mean, there's a jurisdictional argument, but it seems to me, would you not agree that it does seem a bit more compelling to say, Congress decided that under this particular underlying act, certain things can't be done. You can't challenge the grant of it. That seems to be a change. That, is that the substantive change the, that you think is just one of the stronger points you can make here? That Congress did something to amend that act to cause a different change to happen than, than relying upon the old act and just saying you can't do it. Well, I think C-1 changes substantive law, if by substantive law you mean law that pertains to the merits of the petitioner's claims. But of, co of course, no change to jurisdictional law changes substantive law in that sense. And that doesn't, that doesn't render change in jurisdictional law unconstitutional 
because Congress has plenary authority to yeah, regulate. The problem, well, the problem I have with jurisdictional basis alone would be, what would be the limiting principle of that? Would it be that Congress simply with any act can simply, because we are an inferior court here, can just on its own decide no jurisdiction. Therefore, it's a change in the law, a substantive or positive change, and we can do it. Well, that's what the Supreme Court- Is that alone going to be enough? Even, even Klein says if Congress withdraws jurisdiction over a class of cases, if that's all Congress had done there, that's fine. Now, let's, you know, Patrick, all three opinions- but, but don't, don't lose me there, because class of cases, we don't have a class of cases here, do we? Yes, we do. And we most definitely do. So, so you, you see it as being similar to Klein in the instance that a class of cases have been withdrawn. It's not similar to, a, to Klein, but it falls within what Klein itself would be a permissible exercise of legislative authority because it applies not only to pending cases and not only to authorizations that were existing on the date of enactment, but to future authorizations. Where, where, where's the limit on it? In, if Congress can intervene, can can intervene in any type of case we have and take away jurisdiction and that's the end of it? Yes, if you buy into Chief Justice Justice Roberts' dissent. So let's say, and I, I'm going to take it to, I'm just trying to understand where, where the limited principle is. We're in a death penalty case and Supreme Court just, Congress says, we're going to take away the jurisdiction of the courts to even deal with that anymore. Can do that? I think it could. It might have other constitutional problems. It might have, you know, uh, equal protection problems or something like that. And the Supreme Court pointed that out in footnote 27 of Bank Markazi, that there could be other constitutional limits, but I don't think it's a separation of powers limit. I see I'm out of time. Um, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. All right. Really? Good morning, and may it please the court. I'm Don Verrilli for Mountain Valley Pipeline Intervenor. I've reserved two minutes for rebuttal. Um, I just want to note one thing at the outset that, of course, one of the arguments that we've made, and we're content to rest on the briefs on that, is that the question of the constitutionality of the statute is one that's been exclusively reserved for the D.C. Circuit. But the court has asked questions about the substantive constitutional issue, and I'll, I'll, I'll go right to them. And what I'd like to do because is because we have to determine our own jurisdiction, and you agree it's always our role to determine our own jurisdiction, right? I agree with that, Your Honor. And in doing so, we have to consider the constitutionality of the statute, don't we? Well, I think technically what the court would need to consider is the constitutionality of Section 324E2, which assigns the, the question of resolving constitutionality to the DC Circuit. So that's the question I think the court would have to answer from our point of view. But getting I think to the I agree merits, with you. Getting to the merits of, you know, both Your Honor and but Judge Wynn. You were saying this hearing is permissible for a limited purpose. Yes, absolutely. It is not one that is without authority. It is not one in which we don't have jurisdiction to have this hearing. Absolutely right. That's, we, we certainly agree with that. But, I've been hearing but, that all over the place that, you know, mm -hmm. the Fourth Circuit but, is having a hearing that they shouldn't be having. And I'm wondering what happened to the rule of law? That the court we're, we're, can decide if it has jurisdiction. I mean, that seems so simple and so fundamental as that. a democratic principle. We're 100% with you on you know, that. It's, but, it's something I think that unfortunately is being lost, but in the midst of all this hyperbole that's going on, there needs to be a calmness of understanding that we're just doing our 
level best to do our job and no more. Yes, we fully understand that. Fully appreciate that, Your Honor. Yes, particularly when Mountain Valley Pipeline made the motion to dismiss that brought us here. Yes, and, and absolutely. We, we're completely in agreement. All right. It's a, a question that uh, both uh, Judge Thacker and Judge Wynn, you've both asked about what's the change in law. My friend from the government has addressed the jurisdictional point. I think there's a more fundamental point, and Judge Wynn, you were getting at it a little bit. I think it actually makes this a straightforward case. The ratification is a substantive change in the law. What this statute does is ratify all existing permits and authorizations. And it's important to understand what ratification means. It's a well- Which Congress can do. Which Congress can do. And, and it makes sense. You know, when I first approached this case, I said, man, that sounds extraordinary. They can come in and do this. But they made that first statute. If they want to change the law, I suppose they can do it. And I, exactly right, John. And what ratification means, I think, is critical here. And I, and I think my friends on the other side have, just don't have this right. Ratification does not mean Congress is saying that these uh, permits and authorizations are lawful under existing law. It means something different. What it means is that these authorizations are, are, are directed by Congress to be lawful and enforceable, irrespective of whether they comply with the requirements of pre-existing law. That is what ratification means. That's what the Supreme Court defined ratification in in the Heinzen case, which we have relied on in our briefs. Um, that's exactly what happened in Heinzen. There was a tariff that had been imposed unilaterally by the president that was unconstitutional. Somebody came into the court of claims and said, I want my money back on the tariff. And Congress then intervened, enacted a statute saying we're ratifying the lawfulness of this tariff uh, exercising our proper authority. And as a result, that claimant in the court of claims lost his case. And that's what ratification is. That's also how Swain and Hoyt, uh, the other Supreme Court decision we've cited, defines ratification. And that's what happened here. It's, and it's quite unambiguous that that's what happened here. Let's take that argument you just made, you're making now, which I understand it, uh, in the context of separation of powers. So, and your ratification, I think I'm correct, that from going forward to the end, meaning full capacity, Mountain Valley can violate any environmental protection that exists in existing law, and it's okay. Am I right? No, I don't think it's exactly that. Yeah, well, what would stop them from, you just said they, rat, I thought I misunderstood you. You said we ratify, we're not saying what they're doing is right. We're just saying whatever they're doing is permiss well, I, permitted. I, That's what you said, did it not? With, res with respect, Your Honor, I think Congress would not have ratified unless it thought. Well, we don't know. We, don't, well, we, we can't. We don't know what Congress thought. Well, we, we have to go by what they wrote. Yes, as, as Justice Scalia would tell us often yes, in his opinions. Am I right about that? Absolutely right. Am I right that also it has to mean that Mountain Valley can violate? No, it wouldn't be violation because they are ratified to do anything that would normally would require permit and approval for completion of this pipeline. Is that right? They have to get the permit and approval, but they once they've the, got it- The once... statute says it has to be given to them. Yes, that's right. And well, once... then they have that then. And so while my question is used very simple. Isn't it true that they could violate any environmental law and it's ratified until they until they get to full capacity. Is that right or wrong? I think I would phrase it differently. No, no, you don't have to get to phrase my question. Try to answer. 
I would my say- My question, is that true? Congress has made a decision that those laws don't apply. I know That's that. I'm just asking you, is it correct that they could violate any environmental law? Well, I, I guess I, I'm not trying to quibble with your honor, but no, 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 wouldn't, no, wouldn't no, be no, a violation. You're saying the law doesn't apply to Mountain Valley Pipeline any longer. And I do think- And the result is they could do whatever they want to do in terms of what otherwise would be a violation. Is that correct? So I think is that correct? These statutes would no longer be enforceable against them. That's correct. And so, but and then so then isn't that a separation of powers problem? Because once you have that situation, the president of the United States, the head of the executive branch, could not intervene because they, the, the president would be in violation of the statute if they said, "No, no, wait a minute, that's too far." Now we're not going to approve that. Wouldn't the president be in violation of the statute? So I don't think the president would have that authority given the statute. And I think the key, and I and I do direct want to direct that's what I said. The president would be isn't that a separation of powers? I don't think so, Your Honor. Because, Why not? Because Congress determines the authority that federal executive branch agencies have, and Congress can tailor that authority in a way that it thinks is appropriate. And that is what has happened here. But aren't these that's, agencies under the executive? Yes, they are. But well, then isn't the president the head of the executive branch? Yes, of course. Well, then, wouldn't that interfere with separation of powers if you now had this law that says, no, Mr. President or Madam President, you can't do anything about this, well, no matter what the violations may be. And that's hypothetical, obviously. But whatever these violations are, Congress has said it's greenlit. In our, and you have no stoplight. The role of the Congress is to make the law the role of the executive is to execute the law that Congress has made. And the law that Congress has made here, and I do think it's very important to look at subsection F of the statute, and with the court's permission, I'm going to read the relevant language because I think it's critical and I think it goes to the questions Your Honor is asking me. It says, this section supersedes any other provision of law that is inconsistent with the issuance of any authorization, permit, verification, biological opinion, incidental take statement, or other approval for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Congress could not have been clearer that it is changing the substantive law. It says it right here, that that's what it's doing. You, is that a selective jurisdiction stripping? It seems as though it's dealing with the granting of it. What happens if something is denied? Does jurisdiction still lie with this court or the D.C. Circuit? Yes, it would. And But Congress has the authority lie to- lie with this court, because uh, that does not cover the, the, the grant of it seems to, to shift it to the D.C. That, circuit, but if it's denied, does it come here? I, I think it doesn't cover that. I agree with that, Your Honor. But I do think to get to, to I, I want to make a point, if I could, in my remaining time here, because I think it's important to tie this substantive ratification to the jurisdictional provision, because the, you know, the terms of casting around for what the test is, I think Bank Markazi states the test, and the test is that Congress cannot dictate the result in a pending, particular pending case without changing the substantive law. Congress has changed the substantive law in the way that I've discussed. And that's very relevant to the jurisdictional challenge as well, because the test for the jurisdictional challenge, and there really isn't clear lawness, but even taking Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in Patchak as a statement of the, I guess, most aggressive view of the law, is that Congress can't dictate the result in a particular case by manipulating jurisdiction without changing the law that applies. And that, but, and that was my, but, my initial question to your colleague. What, they, what, is the what was the change in the law? 
And I, I think you all have answered that. My question now is um, who, if anyone, determines when Mountain Valley Pipeline is operating at, quote, full capacity? You know, Your Honor, I don't have a, I don't have a, an answer to that question. Because that's part of the change in the law, right? But the, it, it's what's necessary, what, what's, uh, what is uh, protected, you know, what is held to be ratified and uh, what is protected from judicial review is all permits, authorizations, et cetera, that are necessary for Mountain Valley Pipeline to finish the pipeline construction and operate at full capacity. So I guess there would be a judicial question whether a particular authorization is necessary for uh, the the uh, or whether I mean we have to determine but, when full capacity is to determine because after full capacity this statute would appear to not well I think what this cover any claims that follow full capacity if there are environmental violations after that then this statute doesn't cover those, those can be brought somewhere. I, I say I'm over my time. May I answer you the question? Yes, sir, Thank certainly. you. Uh, I, I don't think that's the correct interpretation, Your Honor. I think what it would uh, allow judicial challenge to are things like if the pipeline was going to build an additional spur or something like that, that wasn't covered by the original plans and the original authorizations. Well, I mean, at then, some point in the future, I think this goes a little bit back to Judge Wynn's question, maybe Judge Gregory's about environmental violations without recourse. Once the pipeline is at full capacity, if there are violations after that, um, that, that somebody brings a claim on, is there judicial review and where? I think it would depend on the claim because I, if it were an argument that the uh, permit or authorization is being violated because there are these environmental harms. Excuse me. I think that's clearly covered by the statute and there would not be judicial review of that. If there's some other kind of environmental claim that doesn't involve a challenge to the lawfulness of the permit or authorization, then I, I guess it wouldn't be covered by the mm -hmm. statute. But, but, but this sort of discussion, I, I think, helps your argument that there are things left for the court to do here. It doesn't completely... Um, lack judicial review. I think I, I, I do think that's right, and I and I but I and I and I do agree with the basic point that um, my friend Mr. McCardle made that that it is that this is different from Ray Klein and from Pachak, and that Congress didn't say to the judiciary, "You shall dismiss this case," and that's an important difference. It said, "Here are the here's the new law," and then. It's up to the court to decide whether the permits and authorizations that petitions are challenging are ones that the statute covers and protects. Now, that may be a straightforward inquiry, but it's a judicial inquiry. It's an exercise of the judicial power. And, and I, so I do think, in addition to what Your Honor has identified and the, the possibility, for example, that there could be an application to build a spur or something new, and then that would all be subject to judicial review absent any further action by Congress, that Your, Your Honor is quite right that there is law to apply here. One um, question regarding Klein, the Supreme Court seems to, when you read the subsequent decision, I mean, it really did work hard to try to distinguish that case or to, to, to weave it in. Do you think that Klein 
ultimately is was wrongly decided or that the Supreme Court today would decide it differently? So uh, can, can I answer that by, by, I think this will answer your honor's question. Um, at least I do think the Supreme Court would decide it in, in a much narrower and more careful way uh, than the broad language in client. And um, I, I can point, uh, you don't have to take my word for it. That's what this court said in the Brainerd case uh, which we cite in our brief 691 F second 695, it said that uh, the better reading of Klein, I'm quoting now, is quite narrow and, and construes the case as holding only that Congress violates the separation of powers when it presumes to dictate how this court should decide an issue of fact under threat of loss of jurisdiction and purports to bind the court to decide the case according with a rule of law independently unconstitutional on other grounds. And remember, Klein was about the effect of a presidential pardon, and Congress was trying to abrogate the positive effect of a pardon through the jurisdiction stripping, and that was the essence of the problem. And that's what this court's opinion says in Brainer. And, and, Brainer, and this court's opinion actually anticipated exactly what um, Justice Ginsburg's opinion for the court in Bank Marcazi said about Klein, said that exact same thing that is applies in that narrow circumstance that doesn't have the broad application um, that my friends on the other side are advocating for. Um, and aside from that overreading of Klein, I would just uh, point out that they don't have any other authority for the proposition that Congress can't do what it did in this statute. They don't have any case holding a federal statute unconstitutional on the theory that they're advocating here, other than Klein, which as we've just said, doesn't extend nearly so far. Well, when you start out with a case as old as Klein and it's been hanging around for a while, it's typically we use that pretty strong stuff. But you're right, the Supreme Court, I think, has done its best to cabin that case a bit. So Yeah, and there is, in Frank Marcos, if I may just make one last point, recognizing you've been very indulgent with my time and I appreciate it. Um, in, in Bank Marcos, I think in the, like the very next paragraph after the one talking about Klein, it's, it talks about the kinds of things Congress can do and it cites with approval a DC circuit case, National Coalition to Save Our Mall uh, from the early 2000s, which, and I would commend that case to the court's attention. We've cited it in our briefs. It's very, very similar to this case. There was an effort to build World War II Memorial on the mall, it required permits from various government agencies. They were tied up in litigation. Congress enacted a statute saying, we're, we're ratifying these authorizations uh, because we want the World War II Memorial built now. And the D.C. Circuit held that that was within Congress's authority to do, didn't raise a separation of powers problem. And in Bank Marcazi, the Supreme Court cited that with approval as an example of what Congress has a constitutional authority to do. Do you think it's the difference between changing the law and suspending the law? Yes, because I, I think what this does is say that these permits and authorizations are valid irrespective of those uh, prior statutes. So you're suspending so, the law, really, aren't you? With respect to this pipeline, it's saying that these that those uh, provisions could previously have been a basis for saying that the permits and authorizations were not uh, valid and enforceable. They no longer can be a basis for saying that these permits and authorizations are valid and enforceable. I think one could understand that as a, a Congress granting an exemption from those or a suspension of those. You know, there are different words you could describe. But I think that the key point is the operative legal effect of those statutes is now that they cannot be invoked to, uh, to block the enforceability 
of a permit or authorization that is necessary uh, for construction or, or full operation of the pipeline, at, you know, as defined in the statute. Yeah, and well, I'll let you go with this, but when it comes to judicial authority, uh, that, that's something that's very precious to our system. I mean, it goes back to Marlboro v. Madison Judicial Review. And, and when you're talking about stripping our jurisdiction, which you can, obviously you can, but that's why it requires when you do so, you change the law, that substantive law, that based on the application of that, not directing any kind of decision, but based on the application of the new law, it changes. You can do that. Or said you can't do, put it someplace there. But here you're talking about suspending it, and it goes back a little bit. Uh, I think Judge Thacker uh, asked the question about the question about capacity and, and when is full capacity, for example. That's totally in the hands of whom to determine that? Who, who determines that it's full capacity? Mountain Valley? The government? Who? Well, the, the way this statute operates, as I understand it, is the statute's directed at something slightly different. It's directed at saying that the permits and authorizations necessary to allow Mountain Valley Pipeline to complete and get to the point of operating at full capacity are, are lawful, uh, irrespective of the other statutes, the statutes my friends on the other side of invoke, et cetera, and that there's no jurisdiction to review that question. It didn't say they were lawful. It just said they're approved. That's a big distinction well, here. Well, it says they're approved. Didn't say it was lawful. Well, I, 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 I think you say that yourself. We're not, I think at least um, Carlos said, we, we're not talking about whether or not, in fact, we're saying this is correct in terms of existing law. We're just saying that it's approved. Is that right? Well, I guess I would phrase it a little differently, Your Honor. I would say they're lawful and enforceable, irrespective of the prior law. And that's what the word supersedes means in subsection F of the statute, where Congress said- I know what supersedes means. I mean, you're going all around Robin Hood's bond and not answering my question in terms of who, 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 no, who, who decides who decides what is full capacity. It's an easy question. But I, but I, but I respectfully, I don't think it's a question that- no, you don't have to think about the question. Just answer. So, Your Honor, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be evasive. But, 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 which can, I never can get a direct answer from you. I'm just asking you this. Who decides when there is full capacity? That's simple. So who? Who? I'm, I'm sure that what? the relevant agencies decide the question of full capacity. But and the, how do we but know the, that from this act? But the, but the act isn't directed at that, Your Honor. The it's act, no, no, it is. See, that's the problem you're talking when we talk about our jurisdiction, we don't care about necessarily what the act is. We have to know when we can be judges again and actually adjudicate things. You're saying you can strip it? Fine. Okay, let's assume that's correct. You have a new substantive law? Let's say that's fine. But when is that over and we can go back to the old-fashioned way that courts judge facts and those kind of things like that about existing law? Who decides when that resumes? That's all I'm asking you. Yes, and I, I, the best answer I can give you is this, and I, I, I believe it is a direct answer to your honor's question. Okay. In a situation in which Mountain Valley Pipeline, hypothetically, comes back to the federal government and says, we want to build additional spurs. We want to, we want to build something beyond like in North the Carolina. approved plan, right? The, something beyond the approved plan of the original pipeline. At that point, this, those, the permits and authorizations necessary to carry out that kind of work would not be necessary for the initial uh, 
for the construction and operation and full capacity of the pipeline. So they'd be outside the statute. So that, that's certainly an area in which there would be judicial review, uh, and this statute wouldn't block it. But what this statute does focus on is not the abstract question. That's why I guess Your Honor and I were getting in a little bit of a, um, a tussle here, is that it's not the abstract question of whether there's full capacity or not. It's, is, there, is this a challenge to a permit or authorization necessary for completion of construction or operation of full capacity. So the question is about whether the permit or authorization is necessary to achieve those objectives. And that's the scope of what Congress, that's the scope of where Congress has changed the substantive law. And that's the scope of where Congress has said there's no- And as long as you approve, you meaning, not you, Mountain Valley, but as long as the government approves it, the court can't get involved because it's approval, even if it's beyond what we thought was full capacity still the court has to stand aside until well the government says okay you want to go to another state or do something another spur as you mentioned then if we approve it then the courts don't have a say so still so the other way you ask my question then basically that that metric never the, the goalpost keeps on moving i'm sorry based on who wants to kick the ball and how far Sorry if I was unclear about that, Your Honor. If Mountain Valley Pipeline wants to build a new spur and they would need to go get permits and authorizations, they those they could be challenged under these prior laws, and courts would have jurisdiction to consider them because they're outside the scope of the statute. That's that's this the stat the question under the statute is whether these permits and authorizations are necessary for completion of construction and initial operation of full capacity. Okay. Last question, based on then you said it's in the statute. Where under here does it end? What's the terminus of the of, of the of the pipeline based on capacity, full capacity? So, because I, I want to make sure, because you said that if they want to do something different, they have to come back. What I don't and this what what is the terminus? I'm talking about now just linearly geography. Where's what's the terminus? So the, the FERC has approved a pipeline. It runs from its start to its finish. It has a particular route. All that's been approved. And so any permits or authorizations necessary for completing that approved pipeline just, just and, and, and operating it at full initial operation at full capacity are within the scope of the statute. That's how the statute defines uh, what, what, where the laws change substantively and where jurisdiction no longer exists to review. That, that's the essence of it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Ms. Hunter. Thank you, Your Honor. Kim Hunter with the Southern Environmental Law Center for Petitioner of the Wilderness Society. Um, I'd like to start um, by agreeing with Mr. Verley that we should be focused on the supposed question, jurisdictional question for this court being focused on those approvals um, that are, quote, necessary for construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And that point is exactly why there is nothing left for this court to do, because in Section A of 324, uh, there is reference made to specific FERC dockets, which reference which approvals are needed. So the total scope of what approvals are necessary and would therefore fall within this court's, the, the jurisdiction strip is already a settled fact. We know what that is. And so there really isn't anything for the court to do. It's what Justice Ginsburg referred to as a fig leaf. Um, it's not really an adjudicative role. Uh, there's nothing for the court to decide. 
and it's therefore much more analogous to. Well, one of the things that could be left for federal courts to decide is whether um, initial operation at full capacity is now complete and any new claims are beyond the scope of this authority. That's correct, Your Honor. In a separate case, so there why isn't that enough because for this statute to withstand constitutional muster based on Supreme Court precedent? Because the question that the court posed in Robertson and Bank Markazi and the Pacek case was not, is there anything left for the court to do in future cases and other people's cases? The question was, in pending litigation before the court, has Congress completely usurped the judiciary's role in that case? And that is exactly what has happened here because, and, and um, Mountain Valley even said so in one of their briefs to this court, and I'll quote. I'm sure they didn't mean to. Well, they, they said, I mean, they said, uh, the unambiguous text prevents the court from taking any further action in this case other than dismissing it. And they have stated that over and over again, including to briefs to the Supreme Court last night. So that's really different than their position here, where they're now um, importing this whole new standard, which, as I've just explained, is not a standard at all. Um, I would also like to turn then to this issue of ratification, which I really think uh, is a little bit of a red herring here. There is no doubt that Congress has sort of broad power to ratify past actions. Um, and the Heinzen case makes that very clear. The Heinzen case, by the way, did not involve an Article Three issue, did not discuss Klein, did not discuss separation of powers in this context. And that's because just as it does with regular legislation, Congress has power to pass laws of general applicability, just as it has power to ratify actions in a general, generally applicable way, as it did in Heinzen, where the ratification was focused on the entirety of all tariffs coming from the Philippines. The problem, just as it is with regular legislation, is if that ratification is employed in this super targeted way to pick a winner and a loser in a pending case. And it really doesn't matter whether Congress does that via its usual legislative powers or via ratification. What it is doing with that act is swooping in and telling a court exactly how it has to decide a case. And that's what it has done here by ratifying uh, the approvals which are at issue before this court, because what it's telling this court is, you can't decide whether those approvals are legal or not. The, the basic rule uh, that we we would submit, and, and we agree that certainly uh, the rule from Klein has been sharpened over time um, by the, the intervening cases, uh, but it's- Including the R circuit. We've read Klein rather narrowly, correct? How? Uh, how do you respond to opposing counsel's argument about Brainer? Yes, Your Honor. Brainer um, certainly predated both Bank Markarzy and Pacek, um, and I believe Robertson. And if you look at the way that Brainer was decided, it is simply inconsistent with the hypotheticals that uh, Justice Ginsburg poses in Bank Markarzy. If Smith v. Jo in, in Smith v. Jones, Smith wins. 
That does not involve a factual finding as was required in Brainer. It doesn't resolve, involve a constitutional issue. So that test from Brainer respectfully cannot be the test that has been subsequently articulated by the United States Supreme Court. And we would submit that a better test would be that Congress impermissibly crosses the line separating the judicial and legislative branches when it passes legislation that does two things. One, targets specific pending litigation, and two, directs the court to reach a particular result under old law without providing any new substantive standard. And the, there has been no majority of the United States Supreme Court, which has upheld a statute like this that provides absolutely no new substantive standard for the court to apply, and which is really focused on particular pending lawsuits. That just hasn't happened. This would be a case um, of first instance. And opposing counsel says you don't have any case that um, says Congress can't do this. Well, respectfully, Your Honor, Klein certainly says that, uh, that um, Congress can't do this. And, and the basic foundational ruling in Klein is upheld in Bank Markazi, is uh, even upheld in Pacek, certainly is upheld in Robertson and Pope and many other cases over the years. The Supreme Court has had plenty of time to declare Klein uh, bad law, but it, it hasn't. And I think the reason is, is because the principle is upheld in Pacek. Well, the, the principle- there's, there's no majority, right? That That is correct, Your Honor, but certainly all of the, no justices said that Klein was bad law in Patrick is, is I guess the best that we can take from, from that case. Um, but it is worth pointing out that there were four justices in that case that said a unilateral strip of jurisdiction as we have in this case, would not pass constitutional muster because you can't use jurisdiction stripping as Congress has intended to here as a means to an end and that that would essentially just be empty formalism. An empty formalism is exactly what um, my colleagues on the other side want, want to have here. They're saying, well, no court, we're not saying that you have to pick us as the winner in this case. We're saying that you first have to look if that we are the winner. Exactly, exactly, Rana. So it would be analogous to a case in Smith v. Jones. Smith wins if, if this court determines Smith is Smith. And by the way, the statute uh, declares Smith's social security number. So there's, there's just nothing actual left for the court to do here. So the matter before us right now, um, one of the things uh, I've not heard the word state brought up at all in this hearing, and I guess it's because it's chose not it chose not to challenge that for this court. Um, and um, Chief has had me a sheet of paper that I guess everybody knows now the Supreme Court has vacated state in this case, but that doesn't affect the arguments that we're currently hearing in this case, as I, as I see it. Uh, the state is simply uh, an extraordinary type relief that just pauses while something is being decided. And from what I understand, 
unless I'm wrong, we continue where we're going. We have yet to decide that which is before us, extraordinary matter of holding things in place. Uh, Supreme Court, and, if, and if you prevail, there would be remedies that could be exacted down the road from it. It's just that for whatever reason, the Supreme Court decided at this point not to do that. Uh, and that was not unexpected, <laughs> I should say. Uh, but it's uh, but at the same time, uh, when you have relied heavily on the Klein case, there are a number of legal scholars that have gone with that case and, and really worked it through. You heard uh, uh, the other side argue about it, and I've asked about it, because the consistency of the Supreme Court's law is important to us. And you ought not make law based on any particular party or any particular person or entity. Uh, I, uh, I think all of us, we follow the rule of law. And sometimes the rule of law does not please people in certain positions, but the rule of law sometimes exact uh, results that are not, I guess one about that sometimes they're just not uh, politically favored, but at the same time, it's the rule of law. And that's kind of the, the conundrum the court has always put in. When you are making decisions that you don't appeal to a constituency, you just follow the law. You wrote it and we do it. And it comes out a particular way. But in this instance, with the Klein case here, that's why I asked repeatedly, if you read that case and in a, in a strictly uh, a strict manner as what it holds, it does tend to favor you. But then the subsequent cases that have come out for the Supreme Court, and sometimes the Supreme Court doesn't like overruling itself. It will temper it or color it a little different on it. Uh, I just find it hard not to say that either it's overruled or it has significantly limited, as has been alluded to, as being a very narrow ruling. Do you not agree? I agree absolutely, Your Honor. It has narrowed it over time, um, but not to the point where it does not exist, and for good reason, that um, regardless of you know comings and goings of different political consequences, the separation of powers is fundamental to our system of government. And so I think that's why there still has to be some line between the judicial and legislative branches. We couldn't have, for example, Congress in its next budget cycle say every legislator gets to pick a case in the Fourth Circuit where you can just pick a winner and a loser. We know that that, that would not, not be okay. And so there, there has to be a line and respectfully, here, that line has been crossed. We've seen in those other cases, um, sure, where it's been winnowed, but there's always been that substantive standard left. We saw that in Robertson. There was a substantive role for well, the court Congress to apply. Congress can do that if, as long as there is, according to the Supreme Court, as long as there is a, a new legal standard in the statute or an amended legal standard. Your your argument is there's not a new standard here, correct? That's right. Unlike Bank Marcarzi, where there was a new standard, unlike Robertson, where there was a new standard, or Congress could do it without a new le legal standard if they did it in a much more broad and general way. What they can't do is those two things together that, that targeted a particular cases without uh, providing the new standard. And that's why this particular statute is so problematic. And I and I believe you can read consistently with all of the prior Supreme Court case law on point and still certainly um, de uh, deny the, the 
the respondent's motion to dismiss here. You see, one, one of the pain points of this case, and one of the things the Supreme Court could help us out on, when they issue decisions that are conflated and dance around the issue, they don't help us a whole lot. And, and so when a case like this comes up, an issue that's argued by the other side is, can jurisdiction stripping alone be enough? And they argue that quite strongly, and they correct that the plurality in Patach says that. But it's plurality. It doesn't say that. You only had four justices to agree with that. The other two uh, that, uh, that, that formed the six there went on the, the immunity side of it. So you don't really have a statement that says that alone would be. And I question, would it? Could it be, uh, even uh, in, in, in opposition, that Chief Justice Roberts was one of the dissenting justices in that case there, and that, that really came up. Is that going to be enough just to strip jurisdiction? And if it's so, what is the limiting principle of doing it? And, and that's sort of the, the import of why we are here today is to understand from a jurisdictional perspective, which we've all agreed that we are here by proper authority to determine that question of jurisdiction, not getting a whole lot of other stuff, but but that's a key point in this case here. I don't know if we're going to get a pronouncement from the Supreme Court on it. I I, I think it's one of these cases that uh, it'll sort of dance around and leave it for another day. But where this case has started, and we cannot be blind to the history of it and why we are actually here, the law is what we're going to stick with. But where does it go? And how is it going to show back up in a different context, maybe in a different environment as to, no pun intended on the environment thing, but <laughs> as, as to how this would, would, would turn out. I mean, that's, the, that's, that's really the grinding part of this case. That's one of it is, is, is what does touch, when will the Supreme Court give us an opinion that lays it out clearly? We wouldn't be here if, if it had been a clearer case on it. Well, and I, I can't answer for the Supreme Court, Your Honor, but I will just note that in that case, it's not just that there was this plurality and then Justice Roberts' dissent, but Justice Sotomayor wrote separately to join uh, with her dissenting colleagues to say that a jurisdiction stripping as a means to an end um, would not be sufficient um, to satisfy separation of powers. So what you have in that case on this precise question of the jurisdiction stripping is four on one side and four on the other side and sort of unclear where Justice Ginsburg is on, on, was on that matter. Um, so I will um, turn the rest of my time over to my colleague, Mr. Tini, unless there are further questions. Thank you, Ms. Hutton. Tini. Good morning, Judge Gregory. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Derek Tini, and I represent the petitioners in the Endangered Species Act case. Good fences make good neighbors. I think that gets at the heart of this question, right? And Robert Frost teaches us that. Justice Scalia wrote- off a little bit, but I understand you got a good argument on, on that, but, but let's back up. you then. go right into that question that I just asked about jurisdiction stripping? I'm happy and to, because I, case, and, and that's- How do we, as a Fourth Circuit, decide that issue brought squarely by the other side? They argue it very strongly, and They've got four justices on the side, that, you know, that, that, that says it quite clearly. You just don't have that fifth one that makes it a majority opinion and, and binds us uh, to it. But it is somewhat persuasive. But, and how, how do we resolve that question 
Supreme Court left it wide open. And now it's now before us as one of the bases. So I, in other words, it doesn't have to be the basis. What I understand, they are getting other, other bases too. But should we go in that direction? And if we do, how? what guides us to do that? Well, I think the guidance comes from Klein and it comes from, from this basic principle that it, Congress's power to control the courthouse doors in the first instance does not also empower it to throw a party out of court, to reach into the courthouse and throw somebody out because they prefer their opponent. And, and that's what crosses the line. So I would offer that, that Ms. Hunter is correct, that a jurisdiction stripping provision would be unconstitutional if that's all it were. And, and here's why. Here's why. All of this about the effect and the meaning and whether... According to four justices on the Supreme Court now. That, but according to four other justices, it would be, right? And and then we're stuck in that rub uh, also. And, and, you know, the makeup of the court has changed a bit. I mean, we must be cognizant of that since 2018 as well, that we now have three different justices. So, you know, we could start pulling them and, you know, making alignments. But um, that, that's much like counting angels on the head of a pen. What are the what's the reasoning behind it? What's the reasoning behind why the jurisdiction strip would be unconstitutional by itself? And here's what that is. Because you couldn't answer the Marcosi question, right? If the jurisdiction stripping alone were enough, it would prevent courts from asking the critical separation powers of question, separation of powers question that Bank Marcosi suggests is at, is at issue. Is there a substantive change of law? If Jurisdiction stripping were enough. If, if Section 324E1 uh, were sufficient to, 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 to end this case, then the court would never get to address the question of, well, what is the effect of 324C? Is there a change of law? And so that's why the, the jurisdiction strip itself cannot be enough to end this case. You no, know, sometimes we can predict kind of where the Supreme Court would go, but that Patacha case is a strange case in terms of the mix of it for what we usually would think about it. I mean, you had Justice Thomas, who joined with Justice Breyer, Justice Alito, and Justice Kagan for that jurisdiction strip. Then you had Ginsburg and, uh, and uh, who else was with Ginsburg? Oh, and Sotomayor went with the immunity. Then in dissent, you've got Chief Justice Roberts with Kennedy and Gorsuch. On a, I mean, the case is all over the place. So you can't look at what we would all think about as, well, the, you know, we as judges don't like to think in these ideological things of conservative versus liberal. We, we just don't buy that because that's, I don't think it's true. I think it's, I think we follow the rule of law and it falls in certain camps. But this is a case, if you ever want to see one, it's not going to give you a prediction on how the Supreme Court would rule on this case because they're all over the place in terms of their usual division, and then they're all over the place in terms of how it's happened. So when the Supreme Court gives us a case like Patach, what in the world do we lower courts do with it? That's the question that's coming to us. I mean, and now the issue comes to us, and it doesn't help us a lot in terms of which direction to go in. Understand, sometimes you just cannot agree, and I, and I understand that, but so what, I mean, you've argued this case, Ilsa's arguing that the client is put into it. You've got a couple other cases. You've got the Mikasa case I heard brought up in the whole bit from the D.C. Circuit and then Springport. But that's the problem when we get a case here. And then it's, we just have to follow the law. We are what you call an inferior court. But we have to follow the law. We don't follow political whims 
or people called us one thing or another, we followed the law. And when the law is like this, what in the heck do you do? It's the question. And what do you, how do you, how do you want us to advance on? I, you know, I, I suppose that's, you know, why there are, are, are guaranteed lifetime appointments and salaries. It's the hard work to divine what the law is, right? I, I, I don't, I, I say that kind of facetiously. Well, but that's for judicial independence. And we're pretty independent about that, the lifetime of Congress. The founders right. knew what they were doing when they did that. That tells us, yeah, we can make a rule, but we like to do things. Sometimes you like to have some notion of how ultimately the Supreme Court would come on it. And this is a case where there's a lot of, Back and forth. Absolutely. And, and as you observe, Judge, when it doesn't align in some of the common ways that people, you know, conventional wisdom would, would align it. And so it, it really comes down to looking at what are the guideposts? What do we know? What, what can we look to the law and find? And so we start with Klein. And one of the things that is, uh, you, know, in, you know, you talked about the scholarship of Klein. Some people think what has happened with Klein is it's become reversed with the, the, the Schooner-Peggy rule. The Schooner-Peggy rule suggests that, well, you can change a law and that has to be applicable in a, in a pending case. Klein carved out an exception for that when it determines the outcome in a case. But then what happens with Bank Markazi is you see the, you know, the exception then get swallowed back up by Peggy Schooner, or the Schooner Peggy, pardon me, the change of law rule. And so now we're back looking for you can't determine an outcome unless there's a change of law. But how do you even ask the question if there is there a change in law if you've been deprived of jurisdiction in the first instance to ask that question? Right. And this this statute presents that problem. We heard a lot today about the ratification provision in 324 C. We heard about the supersession provision in 324 F. But if the government and Mr. McCardle are correct, this court can't even reach those questions about whether 324 C changes the law or whether 324 F changes the law, because this court, no court has jurisdiction to address those questions. Um, uh, if you give the language of 324E1, it's plain meaning. And that is why 324E1, you know, crosses that boundary. It is not a good, it, it doesn't, it, it crosses the fence between the judicial power and the legislative power. Once Congress has allowed parties into court, it cannot manipulate jurisdiction. And, and I think that's what's so resonating about uh, Chief Justice Roberts's dissent in the Patchett case. And, and I, I, I pronounce it differently just from the, the moots that we've been going through. I, I don't know how to pronounce the name of that case. I know it's different from Judge Wynn. Um, but what he asks in that case is how in the world is it any different for Congress to say in the case, in Jones's case against Smith, the court has no jurisdiction from saying in the case of Smith versus Jones, Smith wins. Either way, Congress has just declared the winner of the case, right? And it becomes empty formalism. And it becomes the situation where a constitutional rule becomes a matter of drafting. It becomes a drafting rule to protect, you know, the independence of the judiciary. If we're looking for magic language, oh, the statute in Klein actually prescribed dismissal. That would, you know, that's, that's the case. But that well, even- we review statutes all the time based on their drafting to determine what they mean, whether they're constitutional, not constitutional. So that that is part of Congress's role. Well, 
I agree with that to to an extent that the plan, as as Judge Gregory observed and as, as Justice Scalia has repeatedly reminded us, the evidence of Congress's intent is in the language that it uses. But Congress's intent to declare a victor in a case is equally apparent on a statute that says this court lacks jurisdiction of any case against involving a Mountain Valley pipeline permit and similarly declares a victor if it were just to write a write a, a, a statute that said in the case of Appalachian Voices versus U.S. Department of Interior, U.S. Department of Interior but wins. In Marcosi, didn't the Supreme Court say that Congress is permitted to change the law even when doing so will affect uh, uh, effectively decide a pending case? Yes, and, and that's the rub and, the, and the, the trouble that we have here, right? Because yeah. where is this line between a statute that is outcome determinative, which I believe is the language that, that Bank Marcosi used, and the prohibition from Klein that I think the scholars and its progeny agree is Congress cannot direct the outcome in, in a pending case. You know, that is a fine hair to split, but nonetheless, that's that's the, the task that we're left with. And I think if you when you draw that line as to that jurisdictional provision, the jurisdictional provision falls on the side of directing an outcome because Congress is now using its power to define the the authority of the legis of I'm sorry, of the the Judge Wynn's word, not mine, the inferior court, um, to, um, to, to to affect the outcome, specifically intentionally affect the outcome of a case. And it's that kind of transgression that does cross the line. And uh, coming back to, to Klein just a bit, um, I, I would offer that an additional reason why this court's previous statements in Brainer, et cetera, not only are they inconsistent with the Supreme Court's later statements in Bank Marcosi, et cetera, that Ms. Hunter highlighted, I would offer that they're also not binding on this court because those statements in Brainer and Amur were offered in cases that did not involve pending litigation. So they didn't implicate the Klein rule at all. So there was no need for the court to try and divine what the Supreme Court rule in Klein meant. And especially when it's such a, a difficult matter, uh, it, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, decided in, um, without concrete circumstances. So I think that's a good reason to uh, to to distinguish Brainer or, or, or not feel bound by it here, because it is, in fact, um, dicta. But one of the questions that comes up about Klein, is, and, and it's been raised, I think, by Mr. McArdle and others, is that really, while that case was all about the pardon power of the executive and that it was a, a crossing of the the, the exercise of the legislative branch of executive power, not the judicial power. But and I don't think, as Mr. Verrilli uh, um, argued, that Bank Marcosi uh, says that. And, and if it does, it's inconsistent with Klein in itself. If you go back and look at Klein, it offers two separate holdings. First, it addresses the transgression of the judicial branch. And it offers uh, the rule that we're all, you know, that we are discussing here today. And then it says, and it's also problematic for this reason, because it tries to redefine the effect of a pardon, which Congress cannot do. It's that also language. And that's why in the Sioux Nation case, the Supreme Court recognized there were two constitutional infirmities in the statute at issue in Klein. Chief Justice Roberts recognized that as well. So I, I don't think it's a safe place to retreat to say, well, it's only, uh, you know, Congress only violates the Klein rule if it tries to do something that, that's otherwise unconstitutional. That's not supported by the original language in Klein, nor is it supported by, you know, um, the, the way. Different, you know, when you look at 
client, the cases, and again, we have to follow client as a case. The Supreme Court comes up with a rule and says, okay, if it's a pardon, uh, then, you know, because we're dealing with a statute, reconstruction statute comes up and says, you know, if you've been fighting against the United States, you can't get your property back. And Congress says, well, if you got a, Supreme Court says, you got a pardon, then uh, you, you can get compensation. Congress comes back and says, no, if you got a pardon, that pardon itself tells you did something, therefore you don't get comps compensation. Supreme Court comes back and validates itself and said, yes, you can, and you've overstepped it. Basically, you can't overrule us to some extent. It's different from the other cases. Uh, the other cases, when you're looking at, you know, the actual acts, and even this one's somewhat different. I mean, this is the Financial Responsibility Act. It's not even named, you know, the MVP Act or anything of that nature. I mean, when you had the Patashi case, you were dealing with a particular act, the Gun Lake Act, so to speak. It was a specific act that was for that. So when you're dealing with, you know, of course, Congress can do that. It can bury, looks like to me, anything in the middle of an of act that doesn't have anything to do with the act except tangentially and then get it passed. I'm not questioning that at all. And, and of course, that's what was done here. But when you're looking back at uh, Klein and, and the basis upon what it was there, and no one has gone there to say it should be overruled, but it looks like to me there's a lot of it that's just not there anymore. And the basis of it doesn't seem to be favored. And yet you argue it as though it is the law of the land. But I guess it is because it's still on the books. But there's another instance. The Supreme Court ought to just clean that up. I mean, it just seems to me, why not clean it up? I mean, Supreme Court doesn't have a problem going back and reversing old cases. If something is wrong and clean up the law, it makes the so-called inferior court's job a little easier. And so when you come, we are not subject to the kind of criticism that, by the way, the kind of criticism we've been loving here, well, something that won't come up, hasn't come up, but it has to be said, it's been a security concern. U.S. Marshals and others have been called up on us and stuff for those kind of comments that have been made on this so-called inferior court doing its job. And no one seems to care about that until you do what if I allude to something I said in another case, what are you going to wait? You're going to wait until there's one free attack on a judge or one murder of a judge before you stop those kind of comments on courts like this. So, But when we're dealing with the Klein case here, that's the case that just bothers me. If you read that case for what it is, there's a lot truly that does favor you, but you've got to put it in context of what the Supreme Court has alluded to in cases on up to its plurality opinion in the Potch case. And that's the conundrum we're in today and what we are here for today, of which we all agree we can be here to decide that kind of thing. In other words, jurisdiction stuff, just for that limited purpose. <laughs> I see that I'm out of time, if I may briefly respond. The... I, I think the nub of it is it, to the Klein may have been reeled in by Bank Markazi and Patrick suggest talk suggests that there may be, you know, it, it is fracturing at least some of the current justices, but it remains the law of the land and it has not, as Ms. Hunter uh, uh, said, hmm? law of the land. no, I'm sorry, Klein remains the law of the land. Yeah, my, my antecedent was unclear there. I apologize, Judge Wynn. No, Klein remains the law of the land. It was, you know, Bank Marcosi affirmed that it exists, and every, I think, justice agreed there that the Congress does not have the authority to say, in the case of Smith versus Jones, Smith wins. And the question is, where is the, the line uh, for when, you know, that kind of 
clearly unconstitutional statute is enacted and um, something that is constitutional. And, and our position is this one falls on the wrong side of the line, that it is not the type of high wall that Plout versus Spendthrift Farm requires because low walls are judicially indefensible in the heat of an interbranch conflict, which this statute has brought upon us. And with that, um, we would respectfully request that the court deny the pending motions to dismiss. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just try to make a few points. First, Mr. Cheney suggested that one of the key reasons that E1 is unconstitutional is that it prevents the court from addressing the meaning of C1. That's incorrect because C1 moots petitioner statute based claims. So the court could dispose of this case, grant the motions to dismiss exclusively on C1 without even reaching E1. So that argument goes nowhere. Admittedly, this statute wasn't written in a vacuum. I mean, it was, if someone breathed and put that, that statute together, they looked at case law and, 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 and crafted this together. The one question I did ask is, why did it limit just to grant and not deny? Well, the, the C1 ratified the prior approvals that had already been granted. So, I mean. So what, in denial, if an agency denies something, do we still have jurisdiction over that? If in the future, the I think you would still have jurisdiction over a challenge to the denial. So DC Circuit gets it if you grant it. We get it if you deny it. If there's a challenge to the granting of approval that meets the criteria, it would need to go to the, I, I, no court would have jurisdiction. There would be, a, you could challenge the statute itself in the DC Circuit. The I see. Now, Judge Wynn also expressed consternation, I would say, that there, there's no clear standard of what what the court is supposed to apply. But all of the judge, justices in Patrick agreed on one thing. For, for an act of the legislator, legislature to be permissible, it has to change the law. Now, Justice Roberts tried to explain what that meant on his view, in his view, and he gave two, two indicia. He said, something permissibly changes the law if it applies, quote, some measure of ge generality or preserves an adjudicative role for the courts. And we've had a lively debate about whether E1 satisfies the first criterion, but let's turn to the second. Justice Roberts said that Gun Lake manipulated a jurisdictional rule to direct the outcome in a single pending case. Yes, because that's kind of counter to what's going on here. I'm not sure he's 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 in, in bed with this with, 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 with where we are. Well, his but, but you got six other justices that are. So well, his concern stated on page one, virtually every page of his dissent was that the statute there applied, had the potential application of one, applied only to one pending case and, and expressly dictated the outcome of that case. Neither of those two central criteria applies here. So and on the that- statute of limitations had run in that case, correct? Right, that's why the, the range of potential applications was limited to one. That was a center central to his whole analysis and that doesn't apply here. Um, and even under his test, even if you were to adopt his test about what a change in the law means, which is as far as any of the justices has been willing to go, this one satisfies it. Let's put, put aside for a minute whether E1 has some measure of generality. It preserves an adjudicative role for the courts. This gets to your line of questions, Judge Thacker. Uh, um, it's up to the court and the, appro the appropriate court to determine whether a challenged authorization meets the criteria and the statute, whether it's necessary 
for the construction and initial operation at full capacity. Now, the court never has jurisdiction in the abstract to say, well, are we at, is the project at full capacity now? But the appropriate court would have jurisdiction to determine whether an approval is, is, meets those criteria, and that preserves an adjudicative function. In fact, if you said in the statute that, that a court can determine whether the approval was appropriate. Well, that it says that if the approval, it says if it's beyond the authority, right? If a denial, if there was denial, they could, but other than that, the DC circuit would only determine whether or not it's constitutional. That's true, but in exercising its jurisdiction to determine its jurisdiction, the court would have to assess whether the petition challenges an approval that meets the statutory criteria for the exemption from the Natural Gas Act jurisdiction. So that would be, that's left to the judiciary. And in fact, we have a bona fide dispute already over the scope of the statute in the, the Bohan and the Bold Alliance cases that are cited in the briefing, two pending DC circuit cases where the court asked in one of them for supplemental briefs on the applicability of 324 uh, by August 7th. And I guess there'll, there'll be a debate on whether it applies and it'll be up to the court to resolve. The petitioners here in their Supreme Court reply say, well, oh, that case, those cases really don't implicate 324. Well, that just proves that there's something for the court to adjudicate, whether they do or don't. And that's all that's required to pass constitutional muster, even under Justice Roberts' test. So E1 passes that test. Um, and I just want to briefly address, if I could, I see my time's almost up. Is it okay if I, um, your concern, Your Honor, you say the project is exempted from all environmental laws. That's not true. The statute ratifies existing approvals, not what's, and those approvals were issued pursuant to federal law. So MVP would still need to comply with the terms of those approvals. And that's a, that's a big difference. You know, the, the approvals carry them all the way through full capacity. Whatever they need to do that, it's approved. Right. But what's, a, what's approved are the federal approvals issued pursuant to federal law. There's no blanket statement in the act that you says- suspended the law as to them. Remember, that's the whole point of the statute. It says, listen, we don't, we're not saying what you're doing or have done is lawful. We're just saying it's approved. And that's what this does. It says it's approved through full capacity, period. It, it doesn't say the project's approved. It says- It says building the pipeline to the point of, for that, that is the project, isn't it? It that says- objective. It says agency approvals issued pursuant to federal law are ratified and approved. That's right. And you said the agency must do so. It directs the executive to say, agency, you will give those approvals. It set a deadline for certain outstanding approvals, yes. But it didn't say, it didn't exempt the project itself from all environmental laws. That's, that's the only- Going point. forward. So after, let me see if I understand what you're saying. After- uh, initial construction to full capacity, which is approved um, based on this statute. Going forward, once that is complete, if there are environmental violations, if something explodes or or there's uh, some sort of environmental leak, this statute does not preclude um, lawsuits about that going forward, does it? No, it doesn't. On its face, withdraws federal court jurisdiction only over approvals issued by certain agencies that are necessary and meet the statutory criteria. That's it. And it's up to the appropriate court 
to determine whether an appropriate whether an approval meets those criteria or not. Thank you. Uh, for, say, say it again. It says up to. So you include the Fourth Circuit. Well, that would depend on the applicability of E2 because E2 also speaks to. Um, I thought you said we don't need to get to that. You said we could just do this, right? We could just decide this at C1. Right. Yes, you could decide right. that that right. this dispute is moot, which the plaintiff, the petitioners don't dispute that the statute C one as written mm -hmm. moots their statute based claims because it supersedes the statutory provisions on which those claims are based. So you don't need to address the constitutionality of E one. If there are no further questions, uh, the motion to dismiss should be granted. Thank you, Mr. McConnell. Thank you, Your Honors. I have four points, um, and then I'll try to be succinct. First, there there's been a lot of discussion about what Bank Markazi says about Klein. I think it might help if I just read it, because I think it will clear it all up. This is at page 228 of 578 U.S. It says, this is the 7-2 majority of the Supreme Court in Bank Markazi, says, the statute in Klein infringed the judicial power, not because it left too little for the courts to do, not because of that, but because it attempted to direct the result without altering the legal standard governing the effect of a pardon, the standard Congress was powerless to prescribe. It's more or less exactly what this court said decades earlier in the, in the Brainerd case. The exact same thing. It's right there. It's in black and white. It's clear. 7-2 majority of the Supreme Court. I, I want to go to ratification next because I think it's, it's really critical. I don't think my friends on the other side have disputed that the ratification in this statute is a substantive change in the law. What they have said is that it's an impermissible substantive change in the law because it was not a law of general application. It was targeted here. But Bank Markazi addresses that exact point as well. That exact same issue was raised in Bank Markazi. And if I could, I just would like to walk the court quickly through what Bank Markazi says about that. It says, we have found that kind of argument suspect that Congress, uh, even laws that impose a duty or liability on a single individual or firm are not on that account invalid. This court and lower courts have upheld as a valid exercise of Congress's legislative power diverse laws that govern one or a very small number of specific subjects. And one of the cases it cites as proof of that proposition is the case I mentioned earlier, the Coalition to Save Our Mall case from the DC Circuit, which I would commend again to your honor's attention. If your honors read it, you'll see it's exactly like this statute, exactly like the statute. And it was approved by the Supreme Court in Bank Marcosi. And this gets, and, and I, I focus on this because I think it may help with the question that uh, you asked Judge Wynn about if you're looking at jurisdiction stripping, pure jurisdiction stripping apart from a substantive change in law, what's the limiting principle? I respectfully submit that the court doesn't need to get there here in this case, because there was a valid substantive change in the law as a result of ratification. And therefore, by definition, this cannot be a case in which Congress manipulated the judicial rule, the, the jurisdictional rules to dictate an outcome without changing substantive law. By definition, it can't be that because they changed the substantive law. So that stark question, which we, we agree, uh, you know, that, that, that there's room for debate about that, not posed here. And then finally, just one more point uh, following up on our, our colloquy, uh, Judge Gregory, which I was unclear about, and my friend from the United States has picked up on it, but I just want to make sure it's crystal clear. Those permits and authorizations that have been approved, 
they themselves contain all kinds of conditions, including environmental conditions that we have to we have to abide by the conditions and the permits. And the agencies can enforce those conditions against us if we don't abide by them. So it's not a free pass by any means. I, I just want to, Chief, I'm sorry, Judge Gregory, you've been chief for so long, and this is your first sitting, not being chief, but Judge Gregory, uh, if you will. Sure. I, I just want to make one comment. Um, we've been living with this case for a long time, all of us. What I appreciate by the counsel in this case, I've been an appellate judge for 33 years coming up soon. Believe it or not, I started pretty young in life. Thank you. Uh, but you have conducted yourselves with great dignity in this court on both sides. Your arguments have been succinct. This is a very difficult area of the law. I mean, we, we weren't environmental lawyers when we became judges up here, but you educated us through the process. And I mean, on all sorts of stuff, not just agency law, but creatures I'd never heard of in my life, a candid daughter, a, a Roanoke long perch, a, a northern long-eared bat, and a Virginia sparrow. What the heck is that? And yet, they are creatures within that, that uh, at least for the plaintiff's side, they have taken a great interest in, and you've defended it. Uh, I think I, I commend you because there's so much been going on outside of this courtroom, but you have not brought it in this courtroom, even today. The way in which you argued your case, you stuck with the law, you argued the facts, and you argued the, the, the principles that are before us, but not once did you deviate to, 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 to uh, challenge the integrity of this court or, or even to try to stem the public's confidence in this judiciary. And I think that's important, that we all should work, and you as officers of the court. I just commend both of you, uh, all, both sides. I want to say it because if we grant the motion, this is probably the last time we're going to see you. And, and people think, well, that's a terrible thing. The Fourth Circuit won't get it. Well, you know, we judges are, are human too. And this is a lot of work. It really is a tremendous, and the lawyers know this on both sides. It's, it is a tremendous amount of work to work through the legal morass of the issues here. And we've been doing it for a very long time, but I, I really appreciate having great lawyers who answer questions and do so with dignity and uphold our judiciary. My hat's off to both of you and we don't know where we'll go from here, but thank you for the way in which you've been in the Fourth Circuit. All right. Thank you, Council. I'll ask the clerk to adjourn the court. Senate die. Honorable court stands adjourned. Sonny die. God save the United States and this honorable court.